0: drums mean it's time for the Paleo Hacks podcast. Brought to you by PaleoHacks.com. What's up, guys? I'm Clark, host of this week's call. And with me, I have Dr. Peter Osborne to talk about gluten, gluten sensitivities, and what eliminating gluten can do. Before we get to the call, I got a few announcements. The first is be sure you check out Paleo Hacks recipe cookbooks. Those are phenomenal. We got them over there at PaleoHacks.com or you can scroll down to the newsletter and check them out. Um, The second, I've started doing weekly health hacks on the YouTube channel at Clark Danger Fitness. Uh, This week, we just went over turmeric, and this works really well for this call because turmeric can be one of the best anti-inflammatories out there. Uh, So I go over seven ways you can use turmeric into your diet and just search Clark uh, Clark turmeric on YouTube and it should pop right up. That's it for announcements, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you like this show, head on over to iTunes, leave a rating and review. Uh, It takes two minutes and it helps us out a lot. All right. You ready for the show? I'm ready for you to hear it. Let's go hear what Peter has to say. Paleo Hackers, welcome back. My guest this week is Dr. Peter Osborne, Clinical Director of Origins Healthcare. Uh, he is a board-certified chiropractic medicine founder of uh, Gluten Free Society, and author of Glutenology, a series of digital videos and eBooks designed to help educate the world about gluten. He lives in Sugarland, Texas, and he's with us today. So, uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Osborne. Hey,
1: thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be uh, gonna be a fun one. I don't think we've had a gluten show in. A year or something. I think Tom O'Brien was the last person we had on here. Yeah, so hopefully we'll uh, we'll be able to add something to that. Absolutely, uh, gluten's been getting a lot of talk about. You know, gluten free is obviously uh, more mainstream now and everything. But I'm I'm curious how you got into uh, being so passionate and really dedicating your whole life's work to studying gluten.
1: Well, it started for me in the VA hospital. Um, You know, I was in the rheumatology department there, and uh, the patients coming in, you know, they were veterans, very sick people, tons of autoimmune pain, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, fibromyalgia, lupus, scleroderma, dermatomyositis, psoriatic arthritis, just the worst of the worst. The problem there was that nobody ever got better. You know, the drugs were being dispensed. Um, you know, they had minimal pain relief, but at the end of the day, they felt horrible because the drugs suppressed their immune systems and made them get sick all the time. Uh, it caused severe gastroesophageal erosion. So, the, you know, the drugs, just the side effects themselves, you know, it was, it was one of those things where, is it worth it, right? And my boss there, uh, he was a doctor, he'd been doing rheumatology for 40 years. The guy was um, probably the mo- one of the most bitter men. Uh, I'd ever met in my life. He he threw stuff at patients, yelled and cussed at patients. And I don't think he was bad, or, or or I should say, I don't think he was malintentioned. I just think he'd been doing a job where, you know, here he is doing the same thing repetitively for 40 years and nobody ever gets better. That's got to make a person miserable. And, uh, you know, you see yourself in the future thinking, is this where I'm going to be 40 years from now? You know, doing the same kinds of things and, and making people Uh, kind of go through the same gambit without any result. And uh, that's what really got me thinking, you know, what else could help these people? At the time I had already known that, um, you know, these were autoimmune diseases and autoimmune disease, there was only one type of autoimmune disease that we actually knew the cause for and that was celiac disease. And uh, of course we knew gluten causes celiac disease, so why weren't we looking at all these other forms of autoimmune conditions uh, and looking at gluten, investigating gluten as the potential reason why these people are sick too and it, it kind of blew my mind thinking about that why that hadn't really been done and so you know I took from that step i i I turned over a lot of research on fasting now people with autoimmune pain, if they would just quit eating for forty eight hours a lot a lot of their pain would go away and uh, so I you know two and two together the only known cause is gluten. The, the only known way to get these people out of pain quickly is to have them not eat. Obviously from that stance, it's got to be something they're putting in. And so I took that information and I collected you know, hundreds of research studies, took it to my attending physician, said, why don't we pull aside some people? Why don't we do some studies you know, here in house, just some small scale stuff and let's see what happens. Uh, he basically told me, no, quit asking, uh, Nutrition's not important and we're not going to do this. So I left. And uh, opened
0: up a practice. That, that, that was the doctor who was throwing pens. That was the doctor throwing stuff. Yeah. Did, did he throw a pen at you when you asked?
1: To do the <laughs> no, I mean, he, I mean, seriously, I don't, I don't say that to demean him or anything. He was a really nice guy. Beyond the fact that he was, he was just embittered by forty. And to me, and this, this is my opinion, um, you, maybe he had other things going on in his life. So I, I don't like to prejudge, but he just, he just wasn't a happy guy. Sure. But he wasn't a mean guy per se. And it, but anyway. Um, you know, I left the VA hospital in open practice, and, and, you know, one of my first patients was a terminal, terminal little girl. Uh, she had six months to live. She had a permanent stent embedded in her arm, and the Make a Wish Foundation had granted her wish. That's how terminal she was. And, uh, you know, we did some studies on her and found, found her to be gluten sensitive, and, but her mom wouldn't take her on a gluten free diet. Her mom said, no, it's, her favorite food is pizza. She's dying. I don't, wanna, I don't want her to give up her favorite food. But her mom. Fortunately, her mom also was sick. Her mom had rheumatoid arthritis, and so she actually went gluten free. She felt so much better within a month. We had that that little girl going gluten free as well, and that was, you know, that was close to 15 years ago now. And that little girl's getting ready to graduate. Uh, from high school, off of all medications, stents out of her arm, no more, you know, no life sentence of, you know, no doom and gloom around her anymore. So that was one of the first experiences I had had with the application Hmm. of that very simple knowledge. What I say now is very simple knowledge that I learned in the VA hospital.
0: Wow, man. That's a, yeah, that's a powerful one when you see the effects of uh, nutrition and for better, for worse, either causing pain or relieving it, um, it can be really impactful. So then you put all this research into, you know, the Gluten Foundation and everything else you're working on with patients. Um, Is this what you're doing every day now still, like working with people? I am, yeah. I spend 20 hours a week in the clinic and then uh, I
1: spend time in the outside of the clinic working on Gluten Free Society, my foundation,
0: um, and, you know, writing and, and, and educating. So you uh, put out the new book, or it's coming out, um, No Grain, No Pain. That's and, right. Uh, I got an advanced copy, and I was flipping through it. It was really, really fun stuff. You talk about fasting in there. I definitely want to get to kind of what gluten is and how to eliminate it, common pitfalls and all that. Um, is, is that book out yet, or is it coming out? It is. Yeah,
1: it came out last week, and uh, it's actually already a bestseller. So I'm, I'd like to thank any of you who are listening if you're – uh, already part of my audience, I appreciate your support. What was the biggest lesson you learned uh, putting together that book? I, I think it was not so much the, the lesson I learned putting it together. it was the fifteen years of lessons that I had learned that I put into the book, and uh, so for me, it was it was more just it was a work of passion mm-hmm. um, and being able to being able to to simplify complicated science for the average person to be able to read and understand with fluidity, that was probably the biggest challenge uh, for me. Okay.
0: Yeah, sometimes they can get really complex with the medical terms, terminology, and, and it can be over people's head. Um, so then I guess to, to simplify it then, let's start talking about gluten and uh, kind of what it is and, and why. It affects us so much. Um, can you give us a simplified version or a bird's eye view of, of gluten 101?
1: Yeah, so there's, there's, there's two viewpoints or two camps on gluten. One is everyone else's and the other is mine. Um, and what I mean by that is that gluten traditionally is, is considered to be this, this one single protein um, found in wheat, barley, and rye. And the name of that protein technically is alpha-gliadin. And so, and so, but the reality is, is gluten is not one single protein. Gluten, their actual definition is gluten is a family of proteins found within the seeds of grass, which grass is, seed of grass is all grain. So it's not just wheat, barley, rye, but it's also oats, corn, rice, sorghum, millet, teff, triticale, you know, all the different varieties of grass seeds.
0: Hmm. Oh, so even in like rice and uh, things that would typically be considered gluten free?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's one of the reasons why my message uh, resonates so well with the paleo community is that you know the paleo community, being largely grain, dairy, and sugar free, right? You know they they understand that you know avoiding gluten is not enough. You know if you want to you know if you're an athlete and you want to perform and you want to recover, you know you can't throw down tons of carbohydrate based grains and expect to to be able to to do well.
0: So even like the gluten-free products that are with rice flours and uh, all—I I don't know what other flours they use. I guess almonds. Mostly,
1: yeah, mostly rice and corn. Almonds and nuts, so so that doesn't fall within the list. But corn and rice and sorghum are probably the three more common, you know, grains that are used in gluten-free products. That you know, technically, they're not really gluten-free. Um, you know, I I'm a big advocate of no grain, primarily because. Glutens are found in all grains, and glutens have been shown to cause detriment and inflammation and digestive problems and muscle recovery issues and, and insulin sensitivity problems. So now, they're just fraught with, with, with
0: trouble. So if you, if you consistently keep them in your diet, you're just asking for a problem. Okay. So what does gluten actually do in the body then when it gets in there? One of the things that it does is it, is it causes this, this uh, condition known as
1: leaky gut which um, think of leaky gut, the the medical term is intestinal hyperpermeability. But but leaky gut is, imagine your intestines like a garden hose, a solid garden hose from your mouth to your anus, it's a tube. And its job is to separate the trash in your food, the the potential toxins that you're eating, right? Because all food contains to some variety and some degree toxins. I mean, plants have natural toxins in them. Uh, meats have natural toxins in them. Our gut's job is to separate those things and, and, and excrete them yeah. while hanging on to the vitamins, the minerals, the healthy amino acids, and things of that nature. Um, and, and so imagine if you're eating this food that, that creates microscopic rips and tears in your gut lining, in that tube. Now, all that waste has an opportunity to leak into your bloodstream. And then once it hits your bloodstream, it has access to everything. It has access to your liver and to your muscles and to your tissues, your cartilage, your ligaments, your, your bones, et cetera. And, and if it's um, if the body looks at it, um, if the body looks at it too long, what ends up happening is this process called molecular mimicry, where you, well, first your body's attacking these things leaking through, but after a long enough period of time, your immune system is so busy attacking the food. It gets so used to attacking your food that it starts to look at you and say, hey, we need to attack you too. And that's what autoimmune disease is. It's when the molecules that are leaking through resemble your thyroid or your muscle tissue or your cartilage. And so then your Mm. body says, hey, we've been attacking these things, leaking through. But you know what? The thyroid proteins kind of look like these things we've been attacking. Let's go attack the thyroid protein. And And that's what we call autoimmune thyroid disease. So so that's one of the components to what gluten does or what, what the family of proteins, those gluten proteins do when you eat grain is they rip holes in your gut that then contribute to this molecular mimicry over time contributing to and leading to an autoimmune disease.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. So okay, so with the autoimmune diseases come their own problems. Um, so instead of treating kind of the autoimmune diseases. We get to the, the root cause, as people in functional medicine say, and the root cause in this case would be gluten.
1: Yeah, the root cause in this case could be gluten. Now, there, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to iterate that there are other things in grain that are horrible for us, right? And gluten, everybody talks about gluten as if it's the demon child, um, but the reality is, is gluten is only one detrimental aspect of grain. You know, we have other things. There's actually five different classes of proteins found in grain. Some of them recently discovered. Uh, Particularly, one of them is called an ATI, an amylase trypsin inhibitor. And this class of protein actually turns your pancreas off. Hmm. It shuts your pancreas down and says, hey, don't produce digestive enzymes. And so when you're eating... This grain in your pancreas shuts off. The grain isn't digesting and it rots in your gut. It starts to feed the wrong bacteria. It can feed yeast, overfeeding yeast leads to alcohol fermentation in the gut. And now that alcohol can leak into your bloodstream and make you sluggish and tired and have brain fog, it can make you hurt, can damage your liver. You know, so there's there's different proteins in grains that are non-gluten proteins. There's another one that that interacts with a, a receptor in your intestine called a toll-like receptor and that causes a lot of inflammation and it, again it contributes to this leaky gut process. Many of the grains, the way they're processed and grown, contain vast quantities of pesticides like Roundup and Atrazine. Unfortunately, if you're a guy and you're trying to build muscle and you're getting vast grain in your diet, soy does the same thing. Um, the, these pesticide chemicals mimic estrogen. So here you are. You're trying to, you know, ideally you'd like more testosterone to build that muscle to recover from your workout. But here you are eating such a hugely estrogenic food and chemical, and it and it kind of offsets what you're trying to accomplish with that workout. Right. And, and so you've, you know, the pesticides themselves also have to be processed by your liver. So now your liver's having to work harder, and that can lead to and, and tend to make your entire system have to basically have to work harder to detoxify on a regular day-to-day basis. Then you've got heavy metals, now, especially with rice. Rice is loaded with the heavy, heavy metals cadmium and arsenic, and these heavy metals interfere with your thyroid function, and they interfere with the way calcium works and helps regulate the different hormones that your body produces. So, you know, you've got to, I mean, those are just a couple of classic examples of how eating grain is just not a smart move, and, and they're not,
0: it's not just gluten; it's it's other things too. In your in your book, uh, no grain, no pain. The first chapter is grain, uh, the grain pain connection. So, how does that work? Is it what we were talking about with the autoimmune conditions? It, it in part. So, you know, one of the components is that molecular mimicry
1: from an autoimmune disease that can set into your muscle tissue. So, one of the diseases is fibromyalgia, right? The people with just chronic muscle pain. But there's something that happens, and I see it a lot in CrossFit athletes. I, I work out at the CrossFit boxes, and, uh, and, and a lot of them will be gluten-free most of the time, right, or they'll be paleo 90%, but then they'll have, you know, 10% cheat days and that kind of thing. But they'll get injured. They'll have chronic injuries. So, like, they'll have chronic tendonitis. You know, you get on the pull-up bar and, you, you know, you do 100 kipping pull-ups. That, and, 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 and anyone who's in great shape, might be able to do that but but then they have to recover from that and if the food that they're eating you know is it tends to create that leaky gut and tends to allow that inflammation to seep into the muscle tissue then it's a lot harder to recover and these athletes will start to develop tendinitis they'll start to develop a number of muscle uh muscle issues and
0: recovery issues okay and um so it's it's the whole kind of 80 20 thing might not be such a good idea when you're trying to uh, eliminate pain and that that little 20 or 10 percent could be the source of uh, poor recovery or pain. Um, also, you mentioned uh, grain flammation, right? I like I like the pun there because yeah, we, yeah. We, we love puns on the show. Uh, <laughs> dad jokes are very welcome. So uh, talk about gluten grains and ha- the inflammatory res- response they can cause. So there's several properties. Some of them we've talked about.
1: You know, pesticides are going to trigger inflammation or grain inflammation. The uh, the heavy metal is going to trigger grain inflammation. The gluten itself can trigger a leaky gut, which then can trigger an inflammation. But then you also have the fact that grains, by concentration, are very, very high in omega-6 fatty acids. Now, omega-6 fatty acids, their, their very nature is inflammatory. And, and so think of the body as in terms of fat, there's two kinds of primary essential fats. There's omega-3 and there's omega-6 and they help regulate inflammation. Now, I want to I point out that inflammation is a normal process. It's not a disease process. The problem with inflammation is when the body is in chronic, consistent, persistent inflammation and the inflammation never goes away. But the inflammation is normal to an extent in that, you know, when you break down old muscle tissue, you want to repair that old muscle tissue with new muscle tissue Inflammation happens to allow that to occur, but if the inflammation never goes away, then you don't ever come in and have that repair mechanism, and so when you're eating large quantities of grains, what you're getting is heavy quantities of omega-6, which set the stage for heightened inflammation because these molecules are inflammatory promoters. That's what they do, so one of the biggest reasons grain causes so much persistent inflammation has to do with the fatty acid composition.
0: Okay, and so the... Uh, the um, abnormal amount of omega six it can throw off your three six nine ratio and that causes the inflammation kind of like uh, the corn finished beef or non grass fed beef commercial it, exactly it it throws off
1: the balance and makes your body just jump to inflammation much more quickly than it otherwise
0: would kind of sounds like it's overheating you know when you're when you're over inflamed it's like too hot there's no cool off period and and uh, like your car, for instance, you know, I know that yeah. analogy gets used. If you just drive it all day long and it can't cool off, it overheats. Maybe you're going through Arizona and uh, you need coolant in there. And so a lot of times we, we don't have the, the cooling off period or we're just overheated with inf- inflammation.
1: I like, I, I like this analogy. I'll give you another one because you guys like these things, right? So um, imagine you're, you're building a house, right? And to build that house, though, you have to rip down an old apartment building that's full of drug dealers and, you know, 'er ne'er-to-wells, right? And so you take a big wrecking ball and you smash through the old building so that you can clear a space to build the nice new building, right? And so think of this as your muscle repairing, right? We're smashing down the old muscle to rebuild new muscle. But every time you start rebuilding that nice new building, the guy who's controlling the wrecking ball is drunk, and he just rolls that wrecking ball right through the house. You know, you get the first story built, and boom, he's just wrecking it. Every time you get something built in it, the wrecking ball just smashes through it again, and it's just the guy's out of control. That's what too much inflammation
0: does when your tissues are trying to heal. Don't want that wrecking ball. Nope. Um, I, Tom O'Brien was on the show, of course, very good gluten expert, and he said something that blew me away. He said that for every one person that gets a gluten sensitivity in their gut, there's eights that have it manifest in the brain. So meaning that when people are testing for gluten sensitivities, you know, they, they're they testing the gut and they come out squeaky clean. Oh, okay, I can go eat gluten. I don't have a problem. But what they may not be realizing is that that could uh, the problems could be manifesting in their brain. Yeah, so that's the thing about gluten is
1: that it's an equal opportunity destroyer. It, um, it, can, it can affect the gut in, in terms of celiac disease or Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or irritable bowel syndrome, but the vast majority of the impact of gluten occurs in nervous tissue. It's a known neurotoxin, so it's going to impact the brain. It's going to cause antibody formation in the brain that can make somebody dizzy and lose their balance. There's a condition called cerebellar ataxia where we get dizzy. It uh, could create brain fog. It's actually been linked to Alzheimer's disease and multiple sclerosis. Those are you know, autoimmune diseases of nervous system tissue. So it, he, Tom's absolutely right. Gluten does definitely impact the nervous system as well. And the, the reason why the testing is so inaccurate is because doctors don't really test for gluten sensitivity when they measure you. What they're measuring for is gut damage only. They're not measuring for gluten sensitivity. They're measuring for gut damage. The only way to accurately test for gluten sensitivity truly is to measure. There's a there's a genetic expression for this. So if you have the there's two genes that we analyze, and if you have these gene patterns, your body looks at gluten as an enemy. That's just the way your body looks at it. And if you have those patterns, that's the way it is. And if you have those patterns and eat gluten, then your normal response to that gluten exposure is going to be to, to trigger an inflammatory tripwire. Basically, it's going to be to cause an inflammatory response again, that inflammatory response, it can go, it can occur anywhere in the body. It can occur in the muscles, the joints, the, tig- the, the ligaments, the tendons, the bones, the brain, uh, the liver, the spinal cord. I mean, you name it.
0: Yeah. I think that's a big one, too, that's uh, important to touch on with brain fog, because for me, it, when I heard about going gluten-free and weight loss, I was like, you know, I'm pretty happy with my weight, gluten-free going pain. I was like, you know, I don't really have any chronic pains, but I have brain fog. You know, I, I would just Boom, at 2, 3 p.m. a couple years ago, I couldn't even concentrate on anything. It was just not happening. I needed to sit down or drink three cups of coffee to power through it. Um, Is gluten kind of the common source, you would say, for a lot of brain fog out there? It certainly can be. One of the side effects,
1: though, of gluten sensitivity is malnourishment, malnutrition. And uh, one of the most common deficiencies that gluten consumption causes is vitamin B12 deficiency. Now, vitamin B12 is necessary to form the myelin sheath. That myelin sheath is the insulation that surrounds the nerves in your brain and spinal cord. So what happens to a lot of people is they develop brain fog, not because of the direct action of gluten, but because of the indirect action that gluten causes malnourishment, malnutrition. So gluten sensitivity can cause vitamin B12 deficiency and iron deficiency and magnesium deficiency. You know, these nutrients are necessary for your brain to properly make neurochemicals that help you think straight. And that's why brain fog is another very common symptom.
0: So with brain fog then, like if you were prescribing Clark some supplements or a protocol uh, to clear up brain fog, what would you go to? What I would go to
1: is I would go straight to your bloodstream and I would extract some of your cells and I would analyze those cells. We'd radio label your DNA and we'd measure your intracellular uh, level of vitamins and minerals. And then we would say, okay, Clark is deficient in, you know, in these five things or these three things or whatever, it, whatever your blood showed us. And then I would lay out a protocol exactly what you needed based on based on what your body was deficient in as opposed to guessing now we could guess right yeah but you get into the guessing game and maybe you guess right and maybe you guess wrong I, I always look at it like when somebody's health is
0: on the line you know they appreciate me not guessing for them yeah and and if you is there something that comes up time and time again with brain fog that people uh, need that are deficient in like you mentioned b12. If someone's having brain fog, is that kind of like a universal supplement to add in or magnesium or some of the other things you were talking about? I know that's kind of going on the guessing side. Sure, yeah.
1: So my best guess then, yeah, B12 is definitely the most common deficiency I see in people with gluten issues. B12 and iron and zinc are probably the three most common. So if we're guessing, although I wouldn't wouldn't put a guy on iron – yeah, you know, it's a little different with a woman who's got a menstrual cycle. She loses blood every month and loses iron in that blood. But guys, generally, if they're not iron deficient, you start putting them on iron. It can actually create the brain fog. So hmm. I wouldn't use, I wouldn't indiscriminately just use a high dose of iron in any man. In any man, um, but but B twelve and zinc are real safe.
0: Okay. Any other uh, cognition boosters? I know this is a little off the gluten path, but. Um any other things that can really increase your focus, or that you've realized in your own health that have helped you?
1: Yeah, there's. I mean,
0: there's a number of different things: B12 and zinc, magnesium, but a
1: specific type of magnesium, the kind that can cross your blood-brain barrier, called magnesium three and um, eight, is is the one that works probably best. Okay, uh, because magnesium has a hard time getting through the blood-brain barrier. So, um, if you attach it to a 3 and 8, which is a vitamin C derivative, it gets right through and it can start helping your neurotransmitters produce themselves you know, in a consistent manner.
0: Okay. Okay. Those are good. Uh, so, Peter, earlier when you were talking about how you got into gluten and everything, uh, you mentioned with your patients uh, that one girl who is now about to graduate but was about to uh, – it was in the Make-A-Wish Foundation and everything. You put them on a fasting protocol and that really seemed to help. Can you talk a little bit about intermittent fasting and um, just kind of a bird's eye view of that and, and if that might help someone who's struggling with pain?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So fasting, one of the things that, you know, one of the things that we do when we work out is we always, we program in our rest, right? We program that rest in because otherwise, you know, we get overtraining syndrome and the muscles ache. We don't program rest though for our guts, right? And we're asking our guts to process food all the time. And uh, the, generally, we'll get an eight-hour fast if we sleep for eight hours. But a lot of folks, you know, they get five, six hours of sleep, and that's it, right? So, you know, we want to program that fasting in because we want to give the gut a chance to rest. Um, just like every other tissue, when you work it out too hard, it, its functionality starts to diminish. So what fasting does is it takes, away, uh, it takes away the stress on the gut. Because if you've got a leaky gut, let's just say you have it, Right? Um, every time you throw food in, that's a potential danger to your internal bloodstream. That's a potential inflammatory. Even though food is supposed to be healthy, right? Even though if we're eating healthy food, if we've got that leaky gut, we're, we're creating an inflammatory response every time we eat. So if we can go a 16-hour prolonged, 16-hour period of time, letting our gut rest, I like to do intermittent fasting in a 16-8 kind of fashion where you, you choose an 8-hour window and you go with it. You eat your meals in that 8-hour window and you give your gut a 16 16- hour break break point and that way you allow it for full and and faster recovery. Now in patients with autoimmune pain disorders, we'll even fast them longer. We'll sometimes fast them 48 uh, hours or longer just to get an initial dramatic improvement and also so we can get them in their own heads to correlate their pain to their eating because a lot of times they just don't get it. They're in pain all the time. They just don't get why it hurts and they never correlated what they were eating to their pain and if we shut down the food, And the pain goes away and then we introduce food again the pain comes back right away now they've made that correlation and now their minds are open to to, uh, manipulating diet a lot more aggressively
0: yeah there's a lot of uh, myths from the kind of early 2000s 90s fitness nutrition movement and that one that was floating around that you need to eat eight small meals a day and kind of restock things and keep your metabolism up people are scared that if they take 16 hours their metabolism's gonna just shut off <laughs> and shut down. Yeah. Um, is that true or what's your thoughts? Not thought at all. On that? Not at all. It's it's never been true.
1: Yeah. You know, if we if we look at this from a paleo perspective, an evolutionary perspective, human DNA has thrived in a past environment of feast and famine. You know, when there was food, there was food, and you ate like a pig until you were stuffed because you didn't know when your next meal was coming. And our DNA and our metabolism was used to that kind of methodology. So, it got really, really good at storing because it didn't know when the next meal was going to come. And so, you know, the body would go, you know, hours and hours of fasting. And, you know, it didn't slow down our metabolisms then. It's not going to slow down our metabolisms now. There's actually the opposite argument that can be made. When your metabolism is used to getting fuel every day, all the time, understand that genetically your body wants to store, it's designed to store. So, the more you give it, consistently over time, the more apt it is at storing what you're giving it. So you could even be eating a normal amount of calories, but your body is such an efficient storing machine that it's just shoving it away into fat cells and uh, trying to save it for a rainy day regardless of what you think is happening.
0: Yeah. You know, we were just talking about cognition earlier and talk about a good mental uh, boost. I find fasting to be really uh, clearing for my mental function, I can focus a lot better. Is that something that you have noticed as well?
1: Well, it's a physiological truth, and here's why. When you don't eat, your blood is free to go to your brain. When you eat, understand that that your gut needs tons of resources to digest your food. That's oxygen, right? And so we deliver oxygen through the bloodstream. And so your body re-diverts blood into the intestine and away from the brain during digestion. That's why after a, a big meal, we want to take a nap, right? We don't want to think about doing algebra or calculus. We want to lay down. We don't want to think about anything. We want to take a nap and let that energy go toward the digestion of our food. And so when we're fasting, you know, that resource doesn't have to be distributed to the gut. It goes straight to our brain. We have better cognitive thinking. We have better
0: skills at thinking, and, uh, and it just makes us more mentally aware. With uh, fasting, then I know it's just a sixteen-eight. Some people recommend the twenty-four hours once a week or twice a week. You know, we had Brad Pelon on here, but let's just touch on the sixteen-eight eating window. During that sixteen hours, um, do you recommend people abstain from coffee, tea, caffeine, or where does that fall into the protocol?
1: I well it depends on the person. Everybody's a unique individual. A lot of my patients, um, I have them avoid caffeine for sure because their guts are inflamed and irritated and caffeine can be a gastric irritant. Hmm. So I don't wanna have that in there if it's slowing down their healing process. But as a general rule of thumb, fasting is really liquid. So primarily clear liquid. So whatever we can get that's clear, preferably water, but broth is okay. Some patients can't, um, they can't tolerate fasting for that long a period of time. So we might, we might bring in something with a little bit of caloric value. Um, so that they don't crash because their their pancreas is dysfunctioned and their liver's dysfunction and their blood sugar swings are so great that they can't handle the fast. So everybody's a little bit different. There's not a magic formula per se for, for everyone across the board. It really is. It's a game of trial and error per the individual based on other underlying circumstances.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's funny you mentioned uh, that because I remember when I was doing sixteen eight 8 with coffee, I would just crash as soon as I ate my first meal but recently I switched to like a black tea which still has caffeine in it and I feel a lot better. Do you have any, any thoughts on why coffee was probably making me crash or anything?
1: It was probably just too much caffeine overstimulating your adrenal glands, pumping out too much adrenaline and then that was telling your liver to uh, basically push sugar out into the bloodstream and because you were fasting there wasn't enough there to feed you so your liver dumps a ton of sugar into you. And then that's going to lead
0: to a hypo hyperglycemic rebound crash. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, it feels a lot better. So I'm, I'm glad it uh, switched. Um, going going back to gluten, you know, one of the most common things uh, I hear people, overhear people talking about is, you know, wheat's not bad. Bread's not bad. My grandpa ate it growing up. Or Jesus is the bread of life. You know, they we have historical texts of people eating bread nonstop, nonstop. But... Um, what I've picked up is that they've kind of changed since old school grains. Can you talk a little bit about how our modern grains are different compared to how they may have been for grandpa or great grandma? Yeah, I
1: think I think in a big way they're different because there's genetic manipulation and genetic hybridization. So we, we create different strains of grain. And one of, the reason, one of the ways we change grain is we make it survive better. We make it survive and protect itself better. Well, that includes our digestive tract. So if the grain has been genetically manipulated to survive the environment better, the environment, part of that environment is our gut. So we just have a harder time breaking it down, a harder time digesting it. Hmm. But one of the other big changes has to do with the pesticide use. The, the, the farming practices today, you know, Let's throw glyphosate down on the ground before we plant it. Let's throw glyphosate down on the ground before we harvest it. So the grain's been double dosed in pesticide before it ever even hits the table. Then you also have, uh, you also have the, um, the impact of, of actually processing it. When we process the grain, you know, there's a lot of different things that can go into that. But we add chemicals, we add bleaching agents, and some of those things obviously are not going to be the healthiest things in the world to eat as a, as a staple food in the diet. But but then you also have this. So so I I even argue with the people that say my grandparents ate grain and they were just fine. I would say I would argue with that. I would say if you really understand history, you know that when grain was really, truly introduced as a staple food, it was only in 1900. Yeah, it was. It's been around prior that point in time, but not as a main staple food for the entire populace, not eight to 10 servings of whole grain a day as a recommendation put forth by the government. As a matter of fact, Kellogg, Dr. Kellogg, him and his brother introduced cornflakes in the 1900s to to cause gut irritation in people who were constipated. That's where cereal came from. It it wasn't this healthy fiber, oh eat this healthy fiber and you're going to be healthy, it was how do we irritate the gut to alleviate this constipation? And so they got corn to irritate people and uh, made it into a flake Hmm. and that's where cereal came from. Now in 1943, cereal products were so popular um, what was happening is mass disease. So the disease on a mass scale, and these were diseases like beriberi and pellagra that were occurring. These are vitamin deficiency diseases caused by grain. And so the government steps in and says, hey, you can no longer manufacture grain products unless you're gonna add these vitamins into them because they're making so many people sick. Now this happened in 1943, and most of your audience probably wasn't alive in 1943, don't know that history. If we take that and we, we kind of fast forward just a little bit more, here we have this entire fortification law. In order to process a grain, you've got to add synthetic vitamins to it or it's illegal to sell because it kills people. But the cereal industry turned, turned the marketing opportunity around and instead of saying, don't eat us, we kill you, they said, now we're fortified with vitamins and minerals, so we're even better for you, eat more of us and got the government involved. So one of the things that happened was the government got involved and they took your tax dollars and subsidized the growth of grain to save small farmers who were at risk for going out of business. So those grain subsidies were were given with the intent that we wanted to keep the small farmers in business so they could keep people fed. But what's happened since then is all these big conglomerate corporations have bought up all the farms. So now your taxpayer dollars goes toward genetically manipulated grains to feed people who are socioeconomically challenged. So here we subsidize feeding people unhealthy food that was killing people in the 1943 uh, prior 1943 um, and we have subsidized the health care as well. So here we're subsidizing the food that's making them sick and when they get sick we subsidize the health care that's not effective, right? Because the health care that subsidizes all the drugs, and we know, you and I both know, that drugs don't cure disease, they mask symptoms. So, so we subsidize the food that kills people, and then we subsidize the health care that, that doesn't really treat their health, it just masks their symptoms. It's, it's, a, it's a racket, in my opinion, it's a, big, it's a big huge racket. I don't think anybody set out to be malintentioned, but I think it's just evolved into this, this huge corporate conglomerate mess And I, you know, other than educating yourself, you know, and changing your own diet and and creating grassroots movements like the paleo movement, I I think those are the kinds of movements that are going to save, you know, our future's nutrition.
0: Yeah, it's about focusing on what you can do as an individual. And uh, one of the things, obviously, with this call that they can do is experiment with eliminating gluten and grains. Uh, So what's kind of your protocol either in the book or that you recommend to patients for doing that?
1: It's a well in the book it's a 30-day protocol and uh, we start the first 30 days with simply no grain. We're we're not eliminating other other types of problematic foods like nightshades and legumes. We're just primarily eliminating grain. I want to I want I don't want somebody to feel overwhelmed if they've never done this before. So we give a 15-day kind of grace period where they're eliminating grain and then the following 30 days we're taking away more foods. We're taking away potential autoimmune-inducing foods like the nightshades and some of the other legumes and things of that nature, and um, and we're following and, and we're following them over a 30-day period. And what typically happens is, if they're in a lot of pain, if they have an autoimmune disease, we get 50 to 90 percent improvement, and that's it's so dramatic that the person who's experiencing the change has no desire whatsoever to go back to the old way of living. And mm-hmm. so now that's that's really where they can start to make an improvement and impact on their health. That's the the book. In the clinic we actually do individualized testing. We go much deeper. I mean the 30-day protocol is designed as the catch-all for people who don't come in as a a patient and just want to feel better without a doctor. But in the clinic we test people for food allergies. We test them genetically to see what they should and shouldn't eat. We test them to make sure that they don't have heavy metal burden or heavy metal toxicity. We test the functionality of their guts and their GI tracts. We make sure that they are capable of producing digestive enzymes and that they have the right kinds of microbiome bacteria. So there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes in the clinic, and and it's we use these specialized tests to basically to cater to a much greater sensitivity to the actual individual, and that's really what functional
0: medicine is all about. Okay, with the 30 day protocol, then. Um Grain, gluten, it's in everything. You know, you look at ketchup and it's got something in there. So they have to be really vigilant, I'm assuming, on making sure every there's nothing in there whatsoever because like we were talking about before with your friends at the CrossFit gym, you know, even if they have that little 10%, it can spark all those, that cascade of inflammatory and pain responses, correct?
1: That's right. If you look at just the gluten part of it, 20 parts per million, which is about the size of a breadcrumb, can cause inflammation for up to two months. So if you have your cheat meal every week, you know you're you're just staying chronically inflamed. You're not going to have that big of an impact. Yeah, it's 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 not that it's all or none. It's that it should be all or none. And uh, and a person should you know if they're if they're really struggling, they should take that thirty day time frame and really just roll it out and see how well it
0: impacts them. Okay. Any other tips or tricks they can do during those thirty days to kind of help um, help commit themselves to gluten-free lifestyle because it's a totally different shift to how someone might normally be eating.
1: I think follow the protocol in the book. It's pretty straightforward and simple. It gives you 30 days of food and 30 days of ideas. Um, Beyond that, make sure you're sleeping adequately. Make sure you're getting ample sunshine. Stay with the exercise. You know, basic fundamental tenets of good health. I call it the seven fundamentals. Food, sleep, exercise, um, sunshine, clean air clean water and laughter, right? So if you apply those things on a really consistent basis, you're going to
0: optimize and maximize your ability to to be healthy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of other things that go into it um, that don't don't revolve around nutrition like laughter and sleep and water and all that stuff that um, people can get so caught up in focusing on one part of those seven and they miss the other six. Um, so that's that's cool it's very important well cool awesome Peter thanks for coming on um, where would you like people to go to pick up the book can they go somewhere to get a, a copy of it or is Amazon work Amazon works we've got some bonuses for people if, if you want
1: to buy the book and you want to pick up the bonuses go to no grain no pain and uh, we're giving away a couple hundred dollars in, in awesome coupons for grass-fed beef jerky sticks among other things uh extra recipes i've got a leaky gut solutions manual that's a 60 page book that we're giving away with the book so you can grab all those bonuses at no grain no pain book.com or you can just pick up a copy at amazon or barnes and noble or any other major retailer
0: okay all right peter thanks for coming on um it was a blast i know gluten's a big topic to talk about for 40 minutes or so but uh a lot of useful stuff I, I got from it. So thanks. Hey, thanks for having me, Clark. It was a pleasure. Cool stuff. Dr. Peter Osborne with no Grain, no pain. I like the uh, the puns in his book are great because dad humor is always welcome on the show. Like uh, the one I heard the other day of how many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Guess, Come on. Ten tickles. Oh, man. All right. I'll get out of here. Um, PaylorX.com, obviously the place to be. Thanks for subscribing. Leave a review and a rating on iTunes. Really, really helps us out. And the last thing, if you want to get a hold of me, let me know what you thought about this show. I am at Clark at ClarkDanger.com. Just shoot me an email. All right. That's it. I'll see you next week. Thanks so much.